Every ultimate experience Ireland has to offer is always within reach with a 182 BMW. The ultimate bowl of chowder, seasoned with Atlantic salt air, the ultimate swim spot, even the ultimate scenic shortcut that happily takes way, way longer. Experience the ultimate with a 24-hour test drive from your local BMW retailer. Because owning your new BMW is always within reach. Visit BMW182.ie. Welcome to Common Ground with Bill Walton, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Today, I want to talk about some of the ways we can improve K-12 education in America. We have a new administration in town and fresh opportunities for change. So what can be done now at the federal level, the national level, to bring about much-needed improvements in the way our nation's schools educate our kids? While the federal role in education is somewhat limited and much education policy is decided at the state and local levels, the federal role in education is still vast and growing, from funding, mandates, testing requirements, school lunches, to 2015's Every Student Succeeds Act. The question I want to explore today is whether this federal involvement has done much at all to drive innovation and improve educational outcomes. And if, if not, what should we be doing? With me today to talk about this and many other related issues is Jeannie Allen, whose entire career has been devoted to education reform and the nationwide fight to ensure that the bedrock of U.S. schooling is innovation, freedom, and flexibility. Jeannie is the founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform and has been on the front lines of education policy development and innovation for more than 30 years. She served for five years at the Department of Education during the Reagan administration, and following that, she developed the Heritage Foundation education policy program. She also launched Town Hall, one of the earliest online social networks. She founded CER in 1993, and it has become a leader in a wide variety of efforts to innovate and improve education at all levels and across all learning venues. Jeannie, welcome. Thank you, Bill. So uh, education, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's narrow this down. We've got uh, a $1.3 trillion loan. $1.3 trillion, it's hard to say trillion, it's uh, such a big number, uh, industry, it's second only to healthcare. We've got 100,000 public schools, we've got 30,000 private schools, we now have 4,000 4, charters. It employs six or seven million people. Uh, how do we, how do, you know, where are we today with this, with this massive industry and, uh, and uh, where should we be going with it? A big question we'll drill into in detail. Yes. Well, where we are with this massive industry is not very far, sadly. It is an industry. Um, it's this great big behemoth, monopoly, whatever you want to call it. And it hasn't moved very much, as you said in your intro, from the 19th century. And the problem is, even though we've made a lot of progress in ways, in many ways, um, we there's sort of a catch-22. We all vision our local schools as a local issue, yeah. or it's a state issue, and so when it comes to saying, how can we really manage and push and change things, nobody knows where to start. It's probably the most diffuse, diffuse, if you will, industry, if you will, ecosystem of any other issue. What, 
What other issue area policy has people from the federal to state to local to intermediary organizations? So and the, re and the, reason, the reason we want to drive change is it's really not working very well. It's working for some Americans, but not many or maybe most Americans. I mean, I think, I think you gave me some statistics last month on educational attainment. Where, how are kids doing? Oh, my gosh. Well, well over 70% of our kids are not reading, writing, uh, doing civics, no history, science at what we consider proficient. So we have a nation's report card. There are national assessments every couple of years. And we make these small little inch strides with a couple of points here and there. And that's it. And you point at the what you call the uh, traditional factory style model school. What's a traditional factory style model school? It's just like your traditional factory where everything goes the way it always has in kind of down a, down a um, assembly line. So you have kids in seats with the same number of desks and, you know, give or take a few in a building with that looks relatively the same since the very beginning, maybe a little bigger, maybe, maybe longer. Maybe there's more of them, but for the same, for the, for 19, the most part, 1910 classroom looks about like yes, it does today. Yes, like a factory line. So even factories today don't really look like that. No. They've changed as productivity improvements have occurred in the private sector. No, in fact, sector. factories actually have more technology that they're utilizing. Factories actually measure output um, in real time. Well, I think we talk about innovation. One of the things that we've talked about before is that there's really been no productivity growth in over, over a century in education. By that, I mean, if we want to increase output, you hire more people. And that's about it. There's not been a big R&D budget in education. So therefore, we, for, if you could measure output in education, X, we, if you want X amount of education, you put Y amount of output. If you want 2X, you put 2Y input mm -hmm. in, and you end up uh, just spending more money and getting the same outcomes. Right. And so the question also is, part of that is a lot of people disagree on what education is for. You know, and and there's a lot of differences of opinion. Some people believe that there should be classical education, and that those rows are good. Some people believe that it should be about helping someone achieve their own individual unique potential. So we've been debating this for decades. At least we've been debating it. Prior to a couple of decades ago, no one was debating it, which is where you and I first met. And uh, at least we've been debating it, but the reality is, why are we trying to come up with one answer? Right. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of different markets for different types of educational um, experiences. Right. Well, what should the federal government role be in? I know you've been a major advocate, and you've spent time with the Secretary of Education and the President, and uh, you've written a book uh, or a pamphlet called The First 100 Days. We're a little bit past that, although looking at the boldness of this agenda, it might take the first 100 months, but uh, it's a great start. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you. And in fact, uh, we're, we're, we're going to be reissuing it, at giving, the, giving the administration an extension. Um, <laughs> and we've decided in very much keeping in, in, in league with what our discussion is, that rather than give the seat time, this 100 days, we should, it should be competency-based model. We should, when we achieve it, so competency-based model is you move ahead or basically you succeed or you're declared done when you've accomplished and mastered something. Now, what do you mean by seat time? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the factory model we were talking about. What, what's seat time? So seat time is how, um, so all states measure schools in large part by how long 
a student is in their seat from the time they arrive till they leave on an annual basis, from the time they arrive during the day till they leave. So seat time is how many hours in a day, how many days in a year, how many years until you're com you have a completion, you have a degree, you have a diploma. And so that is what drives us to have that system that looks exactly the way we have today because that's how schools are measured. Did you have kids there for at least 180 days when some states will expand the number of days their kids are in seats? That's how you get paid. And if you don't do that, you don't get paid for those kids. And you, you write that uh, this model uh, was designed in the 19th century by about eight men sitting in a room, and they created something called the Carnegie Unit. Uh, and this is what gives, and it, it was the wisdom that would, occurred in 1880 that we're still living with today. Right. And the idea was we need to make sure that every student is in a place where they can be educated. So we should measure it by whether or not they've had a certain amount of units in science and math. And back then it probably included surveying and all sorts of other things. And so it was important to get students in seats because they weren't in seats. Not all of them were, at least not the, not the, um, the immigrants and the people like my people who are coming to this country. So go to competency-based. The idea of competency-based, which sounds so basic, it's what we do with everything else. Did you accomplish what we wanted you to accomplish? Did you master the math? Did you master science? Well, how do you measure competency? Is it, is it test-taking uh, or something else? This is, this is the big rub, right? This is what everyone's debating. Because we had this big debate about testing, teaching to the right. test, and everybody hated that. I think, I don't know, but it, 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 it caused a problem. How do we measure competency? The answer is it's, it's got to be by the individual, by the school, and we've got to change the way we measure. So if your school, if your grade, the grade you're in expects you to be able to, let's say, achieve calculus by a certain grade, um, if it expects you to know multiplication tables by the end of the second grade, if you master the multiplication tables before the end of the second grade, you're done. You should move on. Why do we have these fixed ideas of second, third, fourth, fifth grade? We, we take, in this country, we assume that there was some science behind that every grade has a different kind so of So we math. not only had seat time, we created the grade system. Right. And are, isn't the Montessori school based on not having grades? Yeah, I, I think they I... still, in some cases, they still have to have the grades in order to get the money. Well, the, right? Yeah, but but the... technically, there's more of sort of uh, inter- inter-age groupings. You hear about inter-age or ability groupings. They still have to check that box, but they've got a little bit more leeway and flexibility. And after all, the whole idea of the charter model, though some 7,000 schools out there, the whole idea of the model was to give people the ability <clears throat> to do exactly this, to violate, if you will, the old-fashioned seat time. Yeah. And then what we did is we put them back in the box because we started passing state and then federal laws that said, but you still have to have this outcome at the end of the first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, and that forces people to behave differently. So our feeling is rather than require people, the same numbers of people, the same kind of programs, the same kind of measurement of when did you arrive, when did you leave, what are you taking, let's allow educators and leaders to provide education based on competency. Well, that's, that's incredibly radical. Yeah. Pretty much. How do you manage that? Uh, there's a couple of things that we can actually do. You asked about sort of the federal imprint. Yes. I actually think there's some hope. Um, it's modest hope that we might be able to have the leadership from Washington 
to spark, spark this change. Even though education is, by and large, a state and local issue, the federal imprimatur, the conversation, that bully pulpit, mm-hmm. lets and pushes people to do things that they might never do. They feel safe doing different things. For example, during the Obama administration, it was clear they didn't like school choice. School choice did not get enacted nearly as much as it could have. Now it's back on the rise because there's someone in Washington who says it's okay. So on the theory that leadership at the national level, forget about federal government, leadership at the national level can spark change, why not unsilo the programs, the funding that exists, no additional money, disconnect all the lines in between all the programs from pre-K through higher ed and allow school districts, schools to use those funds in radically different ways. So the existing system has federal dollars flowing to school districts or states uh, to fund specific type programs based on specific uh, uh, rules. And you're saying, let's get rid of that. Let's just send the money and have people figure out uh, how to how to create good outcomes in students, competencies. Right. And that's really ambitious. So, yeah. so we think about it incrementally. That would be ideal. Well, let me come back just a bit, though, to explain where we are. I mean, right now we've got funding and accreditation. You, you, you Basically, to be a school, you need to be accredited. You need to have certified teachers. You need to have uh, state-approved textbooks. Um, what are some, some of the other requirements you have to be that are all based on inputs? Right. So, so in some states, you have to have state-approved textbooks. A lot of places, it's more district. It's more district-driven. So you have to you have to abide by state standards, health, civil rights, safety, discrimination. You have to abide by academic standards and demonstrate proficiency or success on the state metric. You have to administer tests as indicated. You have to have your kids in schools a certain amount of days. You have to, and you're required to offer everything from remedial education to students who aren't succeeding. You have to have programs for the poor, for the hungry. You have to have programs for kids with special needs, and you have to demonstrate what you're doing. You have to have certain professional development programs. You have to abide by contracts that labor gives you, even in right-to-work states. A lot of people, conservatives in particular, think, ah, right-to-work states, they have more freedom. There's still master contracts between teachers' associations and state legislatures. There are uniform pay scales that you have to follow. There are contractual requirements for everything from custodians to phys ed teachers. There are language requirements. There are diploma requirements, on, on, and on. So those things happen, have been adopted by and large at the local and state level, and the federal government funds programs that actually subsidize or support or augment those existing programs. Now, what does the Every Student Succeeds Act say or do about this? So it did a couple of things. And when was that passed? That was... uh... Uh, Just uh, end of 2014. Okay, so we have a new law in place that right. supersedes every child left behind. Right. Or no child left behind, right. rather. Yes. Every child. Well, 15, actually. It was 15. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so okay. So what, what does that do? And is that, are you, do you like that? So I like it. It's a, it's a, it's a, a step in the right direction to this notion of flexibility. Mm-hmm. So we believe the tenets of better education for everyone are opportunity, freedom, flexibility, and innovation. So there's more flexibility in federal funding There are fewer guardrails, if you will. No Child Left Behind put a lot of very specific requirements on testing. Mm -hmm. And that, by the way, might sound strange for someone who loves flexibility and lots of autonomy. Um, It wasn't entirely a bad thing. It was the first time the federal government ever held 
districts or states accountable for how they spent federal money. The problem was, like everything in education, uh, when there are requirements to do certain things, they're easily manipulated. So what it did is it turned into a testing frenzy. Rather than, oh, let's use this to show people how great we're doing, superintendents, school districts, individual principals added on. And they add, they piled on big when it comes to testing. Well, one of our themes here is uh, innovation, productivity, growth, human flourishing. Yep. And it seems like, just you list all these requirements, it seems like innovating in, inside of that model is pretty tough. It's very tough. And so you ask about the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA. That was an attempt to actually release some of those restrictions on testing. You still have to test. You still have to report, but no longer is the federal government going to require you to demonstrate your success in order to achieve federal money. You have to post. So there was about transparency, but it wasn't about the federal government saying, did you hold Johnny accountable for the money you received to help him read, mm -hmm. right? So it's better, but innovation, right? To have innovation, just like in any private sector endeavor, to have innovation, people need the freedom to be able to change what they're doing, to fail and fail fast, um, to correct their mistakes, to introduce new programs. Maybe you figured out that what you're teaching in terms of multiplication division isn't working and you want to adopt a wholly new different way of doing it. There's Khan Academy out there, for example. There's online courses at higher ed level. At your average educator, while there's nothing preventing them from introducing those programs into their classroom, they cannot change the lockstep of how they're doing it and their sequence. Well, what do you do about parents that say, well, innovation and experimentation is great, but not with my kid? Is that you know, a... I don't know that most parents really believe that if it's done well. Parents actually... I know I don't, but I... No, I... most parents might say that if you talk to them about it, but when they see excellence, when they see success happening in schools, so what you have to do is you have to give them options. There's no one size fits all, right? So the idea here is you don't mandate it in the District of Columbia Public Schools, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, Ohio, or Maryland schools. You allow those things to be options. And this is why choice is so essential to any reforms or efforts to transform education. Because there may be parents that simply say, I like the old way. It works for me. I suspect given the options, they may not do that. But why don't you give them a chance to actually make that determination? I'll never forget, there's a, there's a woman, um, you know, everybody talks about their ed favorite educator stories. This is a favorite educator of one of my kids' stories. It's a woman who's retiring this year. She was teaching for some 30 years. She had my son in second grade. He sat next to her desk for the first six months of school. It was a private school because she, he, she needed to keep her thumb on him. He just needed a lot more care and feeding and discipline than the rest of the class. I I'm fine with that. It actually worked out. He's a fantastic 28-year-old today. But the point is, there, she had a very structured class. My second son needed a lot more um, uh, flexibility, mm -hmm. a lot more hands-on environment. We should be letting parents help make that decision, but we should be providing the opportunity for schools and educators to create those different environments. One of the big ideas that you have that I love is that uh, the federal role ought to be uh, to make innovation a mandate from Washington with no strings. How do you, how do you mandate innovation? I like it. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, sh it should be their focus. They should say, use these funds, connect them, combine them, um, and demonstrate what you can do. We'll be the R&D uh, holder. You tell us what you're doing, 
We will post your best accomplishments. Yeah. We will celebrate them. Who knows? The president might show up in your school and talk about it. Um, but mandate that people use the funds flexibly. So we'd have Rose Garden uh, ceremonies celebrating an innovative school or outcome. Uh, Absolutely. In, uh... As opposed to just, and I, and I say this with all due respect to great educators, as opposed to just celebrating teachers, if you think about it, and this is heresy, and, and someone will probably write me an awful letter, teachers coming to the Rose Garden I, I are great. I suspect you get a lot of letters. Yeah, I do. <laughs> or people emails. Come, but people coming to the Rose Garden is a great thing for a ceremony because we're celebrating teachers. Are we celebrating what they really did and what they were allowed to accomplish? Because we gave them the flexibility to do it. That's what the Rose Garden Ceremony for Teachers should be about. And you also uh, have, have called for the uh, creating congressional committees that people will come and testify about what uh, what local education leaders think uh, most needs to be done in Washington. That sounds like a terrific idea. Yeah, Has anybody taken we, that one up? No, not yet. We're working on it. I mean, I think we need a pause. I'll tell you, members of Congress love this idea. They'd love to have pe the opportunity to bring people from their districts who are telling them they're doing great things to Washington. Um, Congressman Will Hurd from Texas shared with us recently that there's a school, di school district or school in his school district um, that is using drones to go out and collect data on what's happening on farms and agriculture and with water and bringing that information back. And then students are using that to do science experiments. Let them come and tell how that happened. What do they need? Where do they want to use funds? Don't come ask for more money, but is there anything preventing them from doing more of that? Come to DC, tell us, and by the way, publicize it, report it. Instead, we're still in this very traditional, we have to have a hearing, it has to be about a specific bill. That should not be the federal role. The four things that you, four pillars that you talked about in your first 100 days are, are spending, uh, teaching, higher education, and educational choice. Right. We've drilled in a bit on spending. Is Have we covered everything there that, I mean, you can't cover everything, but is it... Uh... Else yeah, that... I think the only thing, other thing I'd add about spending is that um, even the people in the U.S. Department of Education who have been there for years, and obviously whenever new people come, don't quite realize how much money, the specific money allocated, drives regulation and rules and drives behavior. We recommended to Secretary DeVos that actually one of the first things she could do is like a plumber, go through and kind of, you know, plumb out all of the all of the rules and guidance that are out there that are connected to spending. So that's the first, it doesn't need legislation. What are the rules connected to spending? That's the first anchor to getting innovation done. And then uh, let's talk about the, uh, the teaching part. That's, uh, you have a lot of great ideas there. So this is probably the most misunderstood and um, aspect of federal policy. It's not about how much money the federal government spends or sends to school districts to spend for teachers on teachers. Obviously, we want teachers to be well-resourced. Um, but the reality is we force schools and school districts to have to demonstrate the teachers are certified when certification really isn't a barometer of quality. Uh, we force them to report how many teachers they have in the classroom. We, we force them to have subjects connected to teachers. There might be schools that have teachers that could teach any variety of subjects. And we have a huge pipeline issue. We simply don't have teachers coming back into the class, coming to the classroom <clears throat> enough. So this is the, this is the old Don Graham story he used to be a publisher of the Washington Post and he had a harp degree in history from Harvard and wasn't allowed to teach in the uh, Washington public schools because he didn't have a certificate. Right. Absolutely. 
So those are state, um, those are state ideas, those are state laws, but the federal government rewards or basically sends their money to follow. So, so when No Child Left Behind and even S under ESSA, you have to have, you have to demonstrate that you have highly qualified teachers and the default for states for that is certification. Federal government should say, actually, you're not going to get any money for that. We, we don't really care what the act, affixation is. And, and I, I, I'd be interested in your comment on this. I, my understanding is that getting a teaching certificate is not that much about classroom instruction or hands-on education. It's more about theory and, uh, and other aspects of education. And so it doesn't really translate into going into an inner city school and teaching history. Right. But you could, go, you could go and learn. I mean, it's important to learn classroom behavior. It's important to learn procedures. There's really, really good things out there. There are phenomenal models of how you get... Um, engage a student. You have to learn about the trauma the students come with. There's fantastic things, but why can't you do that in a business course? Yeah, there's a there's a yeah, you, can, you can create a smaller program that's not a four year teaching certificate exactly. program that gets right. you the same skills for a classroom. Absolutely, interesting. So how do you how do we bring that one about? I mean, how does the federal government help make that uh, a reality? I think I think the, the the one of the biggest impediments I know one of the biggest impediments because there's survey and there's research on this uh, is the fact that most people don't want to become a teacher because of the quality of the environment because of exactly it goes back to the regulations and the requirements we're talking about. It's not just a financial. It's financial is important. It's not just a financial issue. It's a quality of environment issue. They don't have the flexibility. They're not going to want to be there. The uh... There's a there's a there's something out there about there's a big teacher shortage now. Want to talk about the teacher shortage? Yeah. So there's a shortage of uh, people willing to teach, or that are sort of the shortage of people who have the current requirements under their belt for teaching in the current old-fashioned construct. There's not a shortage of people who want to teach. Forty-two percent of sophomores in high school say they want to actually become teachers. By the time they become sophomores in college, it's down to 11%. Meanwhile, if you survey military people, retired folks, and retirement now is, you know, like 60s, the new 40, right? These people are young, they're smart, they have a lifetime of experience. The barrier entry in education, even in states that have what we call alternative certification, is enormous. And then there are union contracts that actually discourage school districts from hiring anyone who doesn't have your traditional certification requirements. So we've got millions of people that would be terrific. Terrific, But they don't have the ready. certificate. No. So if we could set up so if we could set up some sort of sub-certification where we had, you take these four, three or four classes in classroom management and educational outcomes, you could end up getting these qualified and ready to go. Absolutely. And so why not have the federal government <clears throat> launch that conversation Talk about, bring the teachers in. What can we do to help make your life better without additional funds? Uh, where can we use funds better? How can we give you more flexibility? How can we encourage your states to give more flexibility? And one thing you mentioned, you've talked about, is the idea that why necessarily even have a teacher in a classroom? Why not Why not take advantage of the online world and have, have teachers that are specialists in something that may be in a different school, different university, maybe even another country? Right. Why can't you have exactly? So so there's lots of ideas and there's lots of schools beginning to try this, have more personalization. But imagine a classroom where you walk in and you get a playlist. This is actually happening in a few schools around the country, including Summit Public Charter Schools in California. You walk in and there's a playlist on the wall. You just have to accomplish all eight playlists by the end of the week. You have your devices, maybe it's your own, maybe it's something the school took in. 
And rather than have to have, although these schools still have to have a math, qualified math instructor, mm. maybe your math could be from Saul Khan, who created Khan Academies. Maybe it could be from sort of a, a professor in the middle of Singapore that created Singapore math. Maybe it could be from my uncle, who was a Bell Lab scientist who couldn't get into New Jersey public schools to teach math, even though he's a crazy math guy. Um, maybe it could be from any number of those people who are sanctioned in some other field. And we so you could be taking your course online. You could be then finishing or mastering, demonstrating mastery through a number of assessments and quizzes, and you can move on. Might also spark you to want to do more with math. Maybe you want to get an engineering course, but there's not an engineer. Well, there's a, there's a company called the Great Courses Teaching Company, and and I've taken a lot of classes through that. And they have an ex uh, head of engineering instruction at West Point who teaches a class on everyday engineering. <laughs> oh, that's and fantastic! So I finally know how a toilet works. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but he's the best in the world at teaching how mechanical things work, internal combustion engine. You'd be hard pressed to find you know, your local whomever to come in and teach that class. I'll tell you what the best math course I've ever taken was a year ago, Wharton, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton professors online through Coursera, which is the massively open online courses, the MOOCs that are out there. And as part of our master's program, we also had to take online courses. And I actually, it was a business course, but the kind of math instruction that I got in six weeks on my own online surpassed anything. Uh, that I'd ever taken. So we can take science online. We can, you know, we can go do hands-on things at the local museums if we want to do something, a natural history, for example, or art or things like that, or go see the museum to, or not the museum, the orchestra for music. What happens to the classroom teacher if we've got all these other uh, uh, sources of instruction? Oh, their role learning? becomes even more important. We need teachers even more than before, but we need them in a different way. We need them as coaches. We need them to enable uh, these open education resources and help explore. We need them to guide. We need them to respond, to answer questions. Then they actually really can take on that role as a leader, as opposed to simply, I mean, knowledge, uh, one of my colleagues says knowledge is a commodity, right? It, you can Google knowledge. Mm. So you want to be able to explain. Or at least information. You can Google, inf right. You yeah. can Google <clears throat> information and then you can learn knowledge. Maybe they can actually then um, set up and structure conversations. But what you can do that's extraordinary once you allow teachers to be freed from open, our, open ourselves to page eight today and go to bullet four and let's talk about what just happened in the Civil War. Well, well, this, imagine uh, if, you could, if you could construct a battle or an argument. Well, the, the barrier I've always thought to this was the NEA and AFT, the teachers' unions. They didn't want anything in that would supplant the teacher. But what you're describing ought to be extremely welcome to them because it makes their job a lot more interesting. It, I mean, wouldn't you, ha wouldn't you rather be in a room where you've got this great curriculum and that great uh, computer program or whatever, and you're, you're helping facilitate all that? It seems like you're... Your uh, your level of interest in what's going on would rise dramatically, and your and your salary would rise dramatically because suddenly you don't there have you to buy all those resources. Yeah. Okay. And so the unions have. How, how they, does that? How does the money substitution work here? I'm interested. Well, so you're not buying. You're not buying, and you don't have to have a contract with a textbook publisher, even if they've got great digital online programs. You don't have to have professional development funds. Um, you freed them up to do other things. Now they can also take on additional responsibilities. One of the things union contracts do is it keeps teachers in a in a in a, in a traditional educator box. You can't uh, go into the cafeteria 
and work with students in the middle of the day. You can't stay after school unless it's allowed by your contract, unless you get X, Y, and Z sign-offs. But imagine the educator, and this is a model that uh, folks like the Millican Family Foundation have created and others. Imagine an educator who says, I have six hours a day to give you because otherwise I need to be home with my children or I'm consulting or I'm, or I'm a media specialist. And imagine the teacher who says, I have 12 hours a day. I would like to teach. I would like to help lead the, or the organization. Mm. I would like to help, you know, lead the music program. I want to stay after. Pay me $150,000 and I will do all those things. You get to fund, money becomes much more fungible. So unions don't like this because they think that by nature, they're, it's kind of Locke versus Hobbes. We're Locke, they're Hobbes. They think like all men are, are, are bad. All, human nature is bad. And if you allow that, that, that would to be happen, Hobbes. right, Hobbes. right. Okay. We're Locke, they're we're Hobbes. All a, we're all in a, what is it, state of nature? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And bad things will happen if we don't actually require that we pay them a certain salary and prevent them from being taken advantage of. But individuals left up to their own devices do great things in their self-interest. That's luck. You know, it's funny. I was president of the symphony here in Washington, and we had a contract with a union that I was designed in the 30s. I felt like it was written by Walter Ruther. It, it, it was sort of read like the musicians didn't want to play music, and they would have all these hours they could do it or not have, not rehearse or rehearse. And it's uh, it certainly uh, not didn't, didn't stimulate a lot of innovation in the, in the orchestra. Oh, well, you know, my, uh, they, were, they were looking for a trumpet player at one point in time, and my husband wasn't allowed to substitute uh, in one of the orchestras in Washington because he was not part of the union. But they needed him, and he was the only one available that night. What's his instrument? A trumpet voice. Great. So yeah. they went without they, the trumpet? They went without the trumpet. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing with, te with teachers. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Let's talk about educational choice, because it, as I hear about this innovation, I think about the differing roles of the teachers, the different ways we can deliver learning. Uh, it certainly raises the issue about charter schools and, and, and vouchers. And what I think you're talking about is something different. I mean, if we've got charter schools that look just like public schools, even though they're funded differently and maybe have different leadership structure, you're not going to get it that much different from a public school. So you really need to, if your your charter charter school need to be able to innovate along the lines of what you're talking about. Exactly. It, the, the choice aspect is necessary, but not sufficient. And I used to say it the opposite way. And why I say that is because we've seen that uh, the overregulation and the overreach of of regulation with government funding, which public charter schools have to have in order to stay in business also hamstrings their educators. So they tend to be more innovative. They can do a lot more. They can be a lot more challenging. It depends on the state because every state creates charter schools in different ways and watches them in different ways and monitors them in different ways. They're still, they're still the laboratory of innovation for the traditional public school system, and many people have copied what they've done. However, they also still pretty much, for the most part, have a box, have to have kids in seats a certain amount of days, have to report on certain hours, have to have certain standardized tests. And so they would benefit more quickly from the exact same kinds of removal of the constraints we're talking about. So even though you're a charter, you still have the same input requirements as you have if you're a public school. In large part, you do. You may be measured differently. You may be able to take kids by choice. You may have less regulation overall um, and may be able to be more productive, which most of them are. But by and large... 
getting to that point depends on your city, state, and then the national requirements. Private schools and private school choice. So we believe, look, everyone should have the opportunity to send their student to the learning environment, not school, learning environment mm -hmm. that best meets their needs to help them achieve what they need. It could be an all-day art school where you also learn math and science, whatever. Public, private, charter, home, online, whatever it is. And that money should follow the kids to the school of choice. We know that if we had that system, the innovations we're talking about would happen because money would follow kids. Money would be at the local level. Now you take 100 kids times $10,000 and say, Bill, we're going to go ahead and let you get what you need to do. You respond by telling us what you've done. Great. That's not going to happen now and overnight. We can move towards that. We have to do is as we're creating that appetite, we need to be loosening the strings to show people how powerful that can be. So choice without loosening the strings isn't going to get us much. Exactly. But choice will drive the innovation. Yes, absolutely. It always you, does. As you compete with other schools for your, for kids, you want to be you want to do new things. Right. But right now we also have school districts, and there are lots of kids in those school districts, and they're rural, urban, suburban, and there are educators who have who are digital natives, who have grown up in an era of technology, who understand that one size fits all doesn't work, that get the fact that there's new brain science that shows we all learn differently and in different times. We know lots about what works in other enterprises that were never really available to districts and schools and school leaders when we're all dependent on the library to tell us what we knew. So we need to give them the flexibility and freedom to understand how powerful this can be. And they want it, a lot of them. Well, there are a lot of people inside the existing schools that would love the kind of things you're talking about, make their life a lot more interesting. And right. as you point out, they could make more money. Uh, political barriers. Where are we on uh, choice? I mean, we've got, what, 36 or 37 Republican uh, governorships and roughly the same proportion of legislatures. The Republicans have been traditionally pro-choice. How's that doing? It's still such a battle. Right? Just right now, as we talk, it's, uh, you know, Texas has been fighting off and on for the last two months. It's run Republican governor, Republican legislature, and um, it could die any minute. I mean, it's silly. Kentucky, we fought to get a charter school law there. There was nothing on the books. Um, nth hour, something very modest got passed. It's ridiculous, the fight. So traditional Republicans don't really understand why it's important. And they have their constituents or superintendents and teachers just like the rest of them. In this case, they happen to be people that they're in their homes, their wives, their husbands, their cousin Ken is the superintendent, right? And so what we have not done is powerfully articulate and demonstrate why educational freedom in and of itself is a good thing, no matter what kind of district you have. So they're up against the same political barriers that everybody else is. They tend to be more supportive on the right, but it's no safeguard. It's no guarantee that you're going to have an educational choice program. So every year there's a little progress. There are programs, scholarship programs, voucher programs for special needs kids, an education savings account, which is a great idea that was just passed in Arizona that allows you to spend your money any way you want for education. There's progress being made. Um, in a very short time, and considering how old the traditional school system is, it's fantastic. We have to be doing more on lots of different fronts. Uh, what about the current Secretary of Education, Betsy De DeVos or DeVoe? DeVos. DeVos. Yeah. Uh, where is she on this, and is, is she going to be an effective advocate? She really believes that, uh, like you, that the traditional education system is old, archaic, 
that we need to start over. Uh, even higher ed, like why are we, we're going to reauthorize the Higher Ed Act. Why are we going to reauthorize anything? Why don't we start fresh? She's very big, firm believer in innovation, in educational choice and freedom. And I think that she is a very strong um, spokesperson to, to be able to talk about it and, and help get this conversation off the ground. But as you can imagine, she's up against a big fight and she's constantly criticized every time something comes out of her mouth about not really appreciating the traditional system. And so the media is critical, uh, being able to articulate to, again, rank and file people why this is so important. So Betsy DeVos will be um, a great ally in this effort. It's just we have to be fighting at every single level. I, 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 this, what you're advocating and, and what we want to, both you, both you and I want to bring about seems to be good for almost every American. They're ordinary people, rich, poor, whatever. If we, if we could bring these things about, good things would happen. Who are the political enemies of this? I mean, who, uh, who's blocking these things? So I'd say there are two enemies. And I'll start with a big one. I used to say unions and the education establishment. There are literally hundreds of what we affectionately have called over the years the education blob. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. school boards, it's administrators, unions, or, or organizations, it's all those groups. And yes, they have full-time staff, full-time buildings in Washington, in every state capital, and for every Any great, A-built building is beautiful. Oh, yeah, gorgeous. <laughs> Costs $16 million, tax exempt, it's awesome. Yeah. You know, so, so they actually have a huge leg up on all of us because they're there every day. And they have money because it comes actually out of the public till. Because the money that they have exists because the public funds schools. So school board dues go into the school board's association, become lobbyists. They hang out on Capitol Hill. They hang out in state capitals. So they are probably the largest single impediment. I would say, though, equally is, is a lack of awareness, apathy. I mean, the enemy really sometimes, what's that old cartoon, the enemy's us? In a way, the only reason they can succeed is because there's not an equal amount of awareness and understanding on the part of the people they're talking to. Because if you showed up in my office and I was a congressperson or I was a governor and you said, we have to have it this way, and I don't know where those Carnegie units came from and those eight men in a room in 1880, and I don't realize that there's actually zero objective science behind why our classrooms formulated, of course, of course you're going to make a compelling case to me about why we have to do it the same way. So we need to make a better case, uh, those of us who believe it has to be changed, and then we have to change the system and make sure money stops flowing through those groups that we're basically funding the enemy every day. Hmm. Well, CER's got about, uh, what, 100,000 people in your network that are out yep. uh, throughout the states advocating. Uh... Absolutely. And have multiplier effects of, you know, thousands more, so... Uh, we're at it every day. Lots of groups are at it every day. There's a collective, uh, pretty strong movement for educational change. We have lots of different shades of gray. What you know? Who wants some federal role? No federal role. Uh, but we're bigger and better and stronger than uh, we used to be in the education. I'll say opportunity. I should say just reform the education opportunity arena. <laughs> Those sound like last final words for this. That, that, this has been terrific. Uh, we've been talking with Jeannie Allen about uh, education in America, federal role in that in education, and uh, hopes for innovation and change. And we've got a lot of good ideas, and I'm pretty confident that with Jeannie's energy and intelligence, uh, we're going to see some of this happen, and hopefully not within maybe 100 days, but certainly, I don't know, 100 weeks. 
There we go. I'll take it. All right. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe to Common Ground with Bill Walton on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.